So take your Bibles. You're there by now, I'm sure. Psalm chapter 42. It's a psalm of individual lament. There are two types of lamenting psalms. A communal psalm of lament and then an individual psalm of lament. We're going to alternate between those in our series. So next week we'll look, next week we'll look at a communal psalm of lament. Psalm 42 has a few things about it that I want to share with you just from a larger perspective. Some DYKs, we'll call them, some did-you-knows. Psalm 42 is actually the beginning of book two of the Psalms. I think there are like five sections within the Psalms. This is the beginning of book two. I think it's actually uh, Psalm 42 and 43 that are combined for one Psalm in the original. In fact, you'll notice this in your Bible that in front of Psalm 43, there is no heading like there is at Psalm 42 or Psalm 44, indicating to us probably this was one actual longer psalm. You can even see that when you read it, there's a common refrain in 42 and 43. So I would encourage you, though I'm only speaking from 42, in your small groups, with your family, perhaps in your scripture memory, include Psalm 43. It really fits well into the overall thrust of Psalm 42. I do believe that was one psalm to begin with. Uh, You'll notice that in this psalm, it follows the structure of a lament. We learned last week that structure is address, complaint, request, and trust. And you'll find this true in this psalm. You'll almost find this true in every section of the psalm, which I think is two sections in chapter 42 and one section in chapter 43. But you'll find that same kind of structure, which is one of the ways you can identify a psalm of lament. And I believe this psalm more than likely was set in the time frame of Israel's exile in Babylon. Now, there are some who believe this psalm was set in the time of David's escape from Absalom. There are reasons for both of these views. I land on the fact that I think this took place during the exile because it's written by the sons of Korah, They were the worship leaders and the children of Israel, the choir directors, the song writers. Um, They were uh, Levites, and so they handled much of the worship. And uh, this is what was absent when they were in exile. And so you kind of sense in this psalm much of their lamenting that those days are gone. They're in the past, and they're mourning that. And I think those things pushed me over the edge, probably, you know, 70, 30. But I think this is a psalm written by the worship leaders, choir directors, when they were in exile and captivity for 70 years, longing for what used to be, so to speak. You're going to see that in the psalm as it plays out. But just some things to help you understand what we're about to read. Also, you'll see this psalm has a common refrain. In fact, your Bibles are open, right? Just look this, and you ought to circle these three verses. Two of them are in chapter 42, one in 43. I won't cover that, but do notice the common refrain in this psalm It's verse 5, and then it's verse 11, and then it's verse 5 of chapter 43. This is the refrain that I think closes out the various uh, verses, we'll call it, of lament. I think there's a lament that happens, and then there's this refrain that kind of echoes or kind of um, um, comes into play after each lamenting verse. In fact, It's my sense that this refrain acts as a retaining wall against the sliding ground of the psalmist's emotions that are expressed just before it. It's kind of like the levee that's holding back a spiraling set of feelings that are are being poured out. And sometimes if we don't have something 
that you know, is a levy against our emotions, a retaining wall against our feelings, they can just run wild. Would you say amen to that? And here, it's God and His hope in God that acts as, as this retaining wall, this, this levy holding back a flood of emotion that could get out of hand. Notice that in this psalm, emotions aren't eliminated. And we've said this a lot for years. Don't eliminate your emotions. Just make sure you translate them. We are made as people of emotion. That's a good thing. But they shouldn't run wild and control us. And so instead of eliminating emotion, let's translate. And the way to translate emotions is through the Word of God being the levy, the retaining wall that holds back the flood of of emotions that could run wild. That's what this refrain does for us. So as we read through these verses of Psalm 42, you'll see two themes emerge from each section. There's two sections in the chapter. And what you're going to see are two themes emerging. Survival and then revival. Can you say the two words with me? Survival and revival. In fact, I have found it helpful to picture this lament in an ebb and flow kind of fashion. Um, Lament flows as he cries out to God for survival. I mean, it really just kind of begins to pour in. You'll feel the weight of the text like, wow, he is really just lamenting. It's, It's a flood right now. And then it kind of ebbs away when he remembers that God will refresh him with revival. So you're going to see these themes emerge. The the writer, the psalmist, the author is going to be lamenting and he's going to be sensing like, if it's not for God, I won't survive. But then he remembers God and trusts God to revive and refresh and restore him. So what do you say we dive in, read the verses, see the two sections, see the two themes, make some comments. And let's learn this morning practically maybe a couple of ways and um, tips on actually how to lament currently. I hope that this message in the end will give you a couple of pointers in what you can do as you pray through difficult times of survival and look towards revival. Okay, Here's Psalm 42. Follow along with me. It is a mascule of the sons of Korah. That word is very difficult to translate. There are very few commentators who really know what that Hebrew word means. We sense it means something along the lines of like a, a cry, um, an expression, but the jury's out on this word. But it was something written by the choir directors um, to give voice to what was inside. And here's what this psalm says. Verse 1. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. And I want to stop there and say this to you. You've often heard that. You may have sung that. You may have read that and pictured like this graceful deer bouncing through a field over a fence and happy-go-lucky. That's not the picture here. The picture is of a deer knowing that unless he finds water, the buck of the doe will die. Like, he needs water to survive. This is not a happy-go-lucky painting. You know, yellow flowers, picket fence, and 
This is a deer searching for what he needs or she needs to survive. Are you with me? This is the sense of the text. And so as a deer longs for flowing streams, knows that this is what they have to find to survive. I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While all day long, people say to me, where is your God? So do you see what's happening here? He's sensing a personal frustration that, hey, God, where are you? And then he senses this on the outside as well because people are saying it to him. And yet he's voicing this fact that, God, I need you. I long for you. I thirst for you. I hunger for you. Notice the metaphors here are human-related kind of metaphors about what we experience. We long we thirst, we hunger. He says next, we remember. And so what he's saying here is that he's in this place of captivity. He's in this place of exile. And he longs for the day when they would be in God's presence at the temple, the tabernacle, in the days of the wilderness wanderings and so forth. And he's remembering that he's longing for this. And so it's in his mind, he's like, God, where are you? We're here. And, and, and it seems like, yo, you're not. Tears do not suffice for his survival, even though that's all he has to live on, he says in one sense. He knows that more than tears and more than anything human, he needs God for his survival. This is what you're picking up in these first three verses, isn't it? I long for God. I thirst for God. I hunger for God. God's what I need. Verse four, I remember this as I pour out my heart and here's what he remembers. How I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. That's probably the verse that makes me think this is written by the son, excuse me, this is written in the time of exile because these Levitical musicians are remembering the days when they would march to the temple, perhaps singing the Psalms of Ascent with families and kind of the back and forth echo and the, the responsive type of readings. He says, I remember that. And you can see his heart uh, is joyful about that. He has good memories of that, but those are days long gone. Now they're in a city that's strange to them. They're held captive. This is discouraging to him. This is a distress to him. In fact, that would be a word you should jot down. Really, the dilemma here is that of distress. And I would say it's even a, a location type of distress. They're, they're in a captive city, far removed from God, from what all that they knew about God, and it seems like they're just away from God. But he knows he needs God. And so he's pouring out his heart to God. God, where are you? When can I come and appear before you? In other words, when will I be in your presence again, in that culture, in your temple again? And so he ends this first section of lament with this idea of these, these questions. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Notice those two questions there. There's about, I think, 9 to 11 questions in this psalm. Here's two of them. And it's like the psalmist is having a Q&A with himself. He rehearses to himself the questions he's asking. He rehearses to himself the questions he hears from his enemies and those who taunt him. 
And here's his answer to all those questions. Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him. So don't you love the way this refrain kind of levies against and shores up this flood of emotion about his dislocation, his removal, their captivity, uh, the the longing for the temple worship again, all these things that are no longer part of our life. What happened, God? This comes out in questions and what I would call biblical complaints, not murmurings, but just biblical questions And he shores up all of this lament in this first section with this great phrase, put your hope in God for I will still praise him. Now a word about this phrase, I will still praise him. It's an interesting phrase. Does he mean I will still yet praise him as in the future? Like I will once again be with God in his temple. He will restore us. This will not last forever. Is it a a sense of like I will one day still praise him? Or is it even in the midst of, of all this difficulty, I will still praise him. I think it's both. I think he's committing to praising God in the midst of unanswered questions and difficulties and lamentable circumstances, and yet confident he knows that captivity will not last forever. God will restore his people as he promised, and he will praise him yet again. So do you see this idea of revival kind of breaking through even these cries of survival? That's verses one through five. You can see pretty quickly these themes. God is the source of survival in the present. Just jot this down. And he's the source of revival in the future. Two themes that are very clear in this first section of Psalm 42. God is the source of survival in the present. He's the one that the psalmist is longing for and hungry for and remembering. He knows that only God is the real answer. He's the fullest, the deepest answer. And he knows that God's the source of revival in the future. So he's going to continue to trust God in the difficulty, and he knows he will worship God in the future as well. So that's the first verse, we'll call it, with the refrain. Now notice what he does next. We'll call this verse 2. Can we do that? Let's read verses 6 through 11. Notice how there's some repetition. There's some different metaphors, but it's the same type of um, aim, the same themes. Verse 6, I am deeply depressed. So if the first verse was about a location distress... Not completely, but in one sense, it's a location distress issue. Here, this is more of an internal depression. He's feeling this weight of what's going on inside. It seemed in the first part, maybe it's more about what's going on on the outside, at least to some degree. Here he's thinking, okay, internally, man, I'm deeply depressed, and therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. This is why some folks think it was David who wrote this, because these are mountain peaks and a mountain range in the northern part of Israel. This may be where David was hiding and escaping to when uh, Absalom turned on him. I see this more like this. The musicians are in Babylon. They're remembering and they're recalling 
their homeland. So, so they're not saying they're depressed because they remember that. They're saying they're depressed because of their situation and God's hand upon them, and they think back upon those places with fondness. That was their land. It was their, the, the promised land. Notice how he describes his depression in verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and billows have swept over me. So even though he's thinking about the promised land where they lived and the geography there, he says, what I feel inside is like I'm, I'm under a waterfall and it's dark and it's deep and the deep's just pulling me down. In other words, the depth of that water is just pulling and calling him. That's the point of deep calls to deep. Like, there's no way to get to the top. I can't surface for air. The breakers and the billows keep pounding me and crushing me, and I'm just sinking lower and lower. I think about how it used to be, but what I'm seriously experiencing and feeling is just like I'm drowning in depression. And yet he says this in verse 8, the Lord will send his faithful love by day, and his song will be with me in the night. This song of his is a prayer to the God of my life. Isn't that a beautiful verse following this incredible and stunning description of depression, of just being under this weighty waterfall that seems to be dragging you to the bottom. You can't get air to save your life, he says, but God, he'll send his faithful love every day and every night. Now, notice something intriguing about this verse. Most of your Bibles will show this. Verse 8 is the only time in this psalm that Yahweh is used. Do you see the word Lord in all caps? But every other time you see the word Lord in this chapter, it's the word Elohim. And I think that's intentional by the author for this reason. The God of steadfast love, the God of the everlasting covenant Israel was known as Yahweh. And I love the way he brings that name into play after describing his most intense moments of depression and distress and internal anxiety. When he's at his worst, when he's at the bottom, when he can't get air, guess who's there? Yahweh, the God of covenant, steadfast love. He will never leave you or forsake you. And the author here is beautifully describing the character of God, echoing what Psalm 139 says, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. Now, is that actually possible? Again, one of those kind of questions and statements that we, want, we wrestle with, like, is that actually possible? But the point is to use an impossible situation to describe the, the uh, incredible character of God. That God is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-loving. And he will never forsake his people. And church, I want to say to you, when life seems to be pulling you further and further down, and you can't get air, and the waves are crashing over you and beating you. And you've got a thousand questions 
and the answers seem slow. Whether you feel this way or not, hear this, God has not forsaken you. He is with you and loves you in the day. He's with you in the night. He is the God of steadfast covenant love to his people. This is why verse 9, he says, So I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now, am I the only guy in the room that thinks that's an odd question after the first phrase? When I hear, I will say to God, my rock, I'm waiting for a praise, aren't you? But he comes with this pretty staggering, almost incriminating question. Why have you forgotten me? I think the psalmist, as Taylor mentioned to us, knows this is actually not possible. But he's expressing what he feels. What he humanly thinks but knows can't actually happen. I know God's my rock. He's unmovable, unshakable, unchangeable. And yet I had this question, this lingering, nagging question. God, have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? He further explains what this means when he says in verse 10, My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, Where is your God? Again, same question as before. And so again, he has this Q&A with himself. He rehearses the questions he asks. He rehearses the questions his enemies ask. Yet none of these questions actually move him or God. He voices them, he verbalizes them, but they don't move him to betray God and they surely don't move God to turn his back on his people because he is a God of steadfast love who never forsakes us. And so he closes out this second verse with this repeated refrain. Verse 11, why my soul are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil. And that the sense of this question in verse 11, as in verse 5, is this. When I rehearse the fact that, yes, there are questions, but God is a rock. He'll never leave us. He's the God of faithful, steadfast love. Then why are you dejected? Why is there turmoil in you? Why are you in distress and depressed? Don't you know God is never going to forsake you? You can kind of hear the, the rhetorical nature of these questions. On the heels of this incredible Almost, um, you know, a staggering lament. He responds by saying, so soul, when you see who God is, how can you be dejected and in turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And so in these last set of verses, you see the same two themes coming out, don't you? God is my source of survival in the present. He's my source of revival in the future. And I just would encourage you in your Bible, just mark or in your journal, just mark and note the, the verses that speak of survival where the breakers and the billows are crushing him. He can't seem to get air. And yet he says, God is my life. He's my rock. I pray to him night and day. His love will always uphold me. Same thing in the, in the first section. So you just see these themes really surfacing well throughout this psalm that God is my source of survival in the present. He's the answer 
the fullest and deepest answer to your distress. And God is the source of my revival in the future. As we continue to trust him through the difficulty, we will praise him in the middle of it and we will praise him yet again. This is Psalm 42. I won't go into Psalm 43, but I would just ask you to notice this is how Psalm 43 ends with the same refrain. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. There are additional questions in that chapter as well, and you see the same two themes, survival and revival. So what's happening here is really the psalmist is lamenting his current situation, but yet it's God's character and steadfastness that's upholding him to look to the future and know it won't be like this forever. Now, does the psalmist have in mind that it won't be like this forever, so next week it'll be different? I, I don't know. Probably not. Is he thinking perhaps there'll be a, a time in his life in which it will be better? I don't know. But there is a sense in which the psalmist knows this is not the end. This is not the way it's going to be forever. Are you with me? He has faith in God's eternal plan and purposes that flow out of God's character. And so even in his questions and lamenting and what I would call a biblical type of complaint, it's always shored up, it's levied, it's, it's um, you know, kind of retained by this confidence in God's character. And his feelings are always kind of buoyed by his theology. His behavior is always guided by his belief. It's a beautiful chapter in which we see these choir directors and these psalmists, these musicians, lamenting their current situation, knowing that only God will enable them to survive it, and then trusting him to revive his work among them in the future. So let me summarize this lament with a view to helping us learn how to appropriately lament. Okay, now hear this well. We could summarize this chapter differently, perhaps through a historical lens or even through a theological filter, and we'd be right in doing so. But my goal in this series, and today especially, is to help us understand these psalms of lament applicationally. So here's what I think this psalm teaches us about lamenting so that we can enter into this type of praying and conversation with God without crossing lines. I think this psalm teaches us that lamenting often flows when we repentantly remember the way God worked in the past, and it ebbs when we humbly realize he will revive his work in the future. Now, we often say ebb and flow. I need you to switch it for a minute, okay? We're talking about flow and ebb now, okay? But lamenting does this. It, it flows into our life. It, it does seem uh, predominant. And we feel its weight when we think about what God has done in the past. So sometimes our lamenting is in moments when we're under the consequences of sin, perhaps the punishment for sin, or even we're enduring punishment for other sins and we're kind of in the mix of that. There's a number of reasons. Sometimes lamenting is not for sinful reasons. So you've got to kind of be discerning here. Just know that there is a sense in which lamenting 
really kind of piles up in your life, it seems more evident and predominant when you think about, man, those were the days in which God was so strong in my life. Maybe for some reason you're undergoing an illness, a sickness, a condition, a, a disease, or maybe it is because of current sin in your life and you're on your way back to God, so to speak. You've realized your error and you've repented, but yet you've got this season of life where now it's, you know, uh, enduring some consequences. And, and your mind right now is, man, I, I wish I had not done that. I remember before I sinned in that way, before I strayed from God. And you're just recalling these days in which God worked mildly in your life. Often, those are good seeds for lamenting. I say lamenting is often repentingly remembering. Do you hear that well? I'm not speaking of like, well, man, give me the good old days. I'm not even thinking about that type of memory. Okay? I'm talking about personal reflection when God worked mightily in your life. And for some reason, you find you're in a dry season, a stale place, and you want this again. You wish for God to work in your life and manifest powerful ways, but you're not sure what's going on currently and you have questions. And so I think in those moments when you have honest, legitimate questions, what I would call a biblical complaint, not a murmur, not an accusation, but an honest question like Job did, it often stems from and can be voiced best when you think about, but God, remember when, and you just kind of begin to think about how he worked in your life in the past, and it makes you then long for that again. You see, lamenting isn't just wishing for the past, it's longing again for God's work in the future. That's why our series, it's living with longing and lamenting. We don't want to be a people that's always just looking over our shoulder, right? We want God to revive his work, to see him again powerful in our midst and our presence. And so lamenting, it does flow, it is predominant. We feel it in a weighty fashion when we have a repentant kind of remembrance that can be helpful. And I found that lament um, kind of subsides when we realize God will do it again. He's not finished. So that's the ebb and flow of lament. I think you see it in this psalm, and I think, to be honest, you would find this to be true in life. There's a stunning picture of this taking place in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Just briefly, let me just rehearse this for you. Don't turn there. It's Nehemiah 9 and 10, but it's exactly this principle played out. They had returned to the land. They rebuilt the city's walls in just under two months, and they celebrated that. So you would think everyone would be in a, a, a state of exuberant joy, and in one sense they were, but I find it incredibly intriguing that at the end of Nehemiah 9, about verse 37, when they close the prayer of dedication to all that's been done, here's the final words, Nehemiah 9, 37, we are in great distress. 
Like who ends a prayer celebration that way, right? But check it out. Read this as a corollary passage sometime this week. After a, a great momentous work, they rehearse all that had happened in the past and they realize they're still miles from it. The city's still in ruins. They're, they're, they're just crawling back. And the prayer ends with this. God, even when, when we look back at all you've done and see where we are today, we are in great distress. Yeah, it's better than being in Babylon, but we are in a mess still. And then what follows that is this commitment, and he has all the people sign it, the leaders sign it, this pledge to obey God's word. Why? Why would they say, we're in great distress? They lament all that has happened, what brought them to this place, and then they sign this pledge to obey God's law because they know that's the key to revival. And so they're looking forward to what God's going to do, even though they just finished saying, we're, we're in a mess. I think that's a beautiful picture of the posture of Psalm 42, that God, when I remember all that you've done and I see where I am now, it causes me to lament. I, I want this again. and I want you in my life. You're my only source for survival. God, I need you more than food, more than water. I long for you. I thirst for you. I hunger for you, God. And God, I know that you'll meet me at my point of need. Your love will never fail me. So God, will you revive your work in me again? That's a good pattern for biblical lamenting. Whether in your small groups, with your spouse, with your friends, individually. It's not just complaining and it's not ignoring and thinking, well, just forget, act like it didn't happen, just look to the future. It's actually a combination of both. We're in a mess, and only God can cause us to survive this. But he will, and he will cause us to be revived in the process. That's a biblical way to see lamenting. So as you ponder this chapter and this picture, let me give you two actions for you to implement. Did you get that? Implement. Took you a while, but you got there, didn't you? It will help us remember these two things. Implement these two things. And I think you'll be on your way to applying the concept of lamenting and longing. First of all, remember rightly. In other words, refuse to blame, whine, or murmur. I'm okay with the word biblical complaint. By the way, it is used by many commentators and theologians in regards to this chapter and others. It does not mean that you're accusing God. It does mean you have a question for God. So remember, in biblical lamenting, it's about expressing feelings not finding fault. And so as you remember rightly, you are willing to bring honest questions to God, to express genuine feelings, but you're, you're not going to cross the line and get into accusation or find fault, which is what James warns us against, and that leads to double-mindedness. So does that help a little bit? Remember rightly. Think about all that God had done and be... be um, willing to rehearse that because it can produce in your heart a longing for it again in the future. 
And in your individual situation, you'll know perhaps why you're in the situation you're in. You'll know why you're in this distress, whether it is a a consequence or a punishment, or maybe it's something sovereign from God that, that he's working for other reasons. You'll be able to discern and know, but remembering rightly is a helpful tool in properly lamenting. We don't whine, we don't blame, we don't accuse. We simply ask honest questions, knowing that that God is in control, he is sovereign, and we don't um, presume but we're not afraid to ask. So remember rightly, and I think a good word to use here is often remembering rightly is remembering in repentance. Second thing I say to you is this, refocus vertically. This refreshes your faith. It brings revival into view. It brings the hope of God's presence and power into focus and the confidence that once again that will be experienced. You see, biblical lamenting is realizing God's not done, and it's longing for that. You have seen what he did in the past. For some reason, there's a dry spell. There's a, there's a, a place in which it's difficult and hard, and it seems that God is absent. No, he's not. It seems that you're being crushed by the waves of the enemy's In those places, you remember what God has done, and it then says God can do it again. And so you lament, but then you long. And those two together can form the right kind of prayer in these moments. I witnessed this just last week when I stood by my sister's grave. The funeral was on a Saturday, and the next day, Me and Cindy and Steve and Julie and then my parents went back to the funeral home to pick up the flowers. In that moment, mom and dad decided to leave some on Kim's grave. And of course, that was not an easy first visit back to the grave site. But through tears, we shared memories. We voiced our questions. We hugged each other and we stood there at her grave site and and talked and cried and in some sense lamented. As my father and mother left the gravesite, they were holding each other, and I heard my father say this so tenderly and boldly. He held my mother close, and he said, that's just her body in there. She's in heaven. I think he repeated it several times. My mother was just overcome with grief, rightly so. My father, too, but he was such a strong man in that moment, for sure, I just pulled her tight, he would say to her, that's just her body there. She's in heaven. What was my father doing? I think he was biblically lamenting by remembering in that moment that God was his and my mother's only source of survival. And yet he was refocusing by acknowledging that God was their only source of revival in the future. You see, in those simple words, I think he was expressing to my mom, he will get us through this and he's not done yet. He will refresh their hearts and lives. He will bring them joy in the morning. He will empower them to continue living on mission until Jesus comes again. 
And when he does, I think this was insinuated in my father's comments, all will be finally and fully right. No more lamenting then. Not even death can stop God's eternal purposes. And in that moment, he reassured my mom, his wife, we'll survive this and God's not done. You see, that really is the ultimate fulfillment and the answer to all the questions in Psalm 42. It's Christ's return. Now, I don't know if the psalmist had that in mind particularly, but as, we, as the narrative of Scripture unfolds, we know that's really when we will appear before God, correct? That's when we'll finally stand before Him. That's when we'll ultimately and freely and perfectly praise Him once and for all. And so we say to the doubters and deniers, here is our God. That's when we'll say that. That's the day we'll once and for all leave behind all the dejection and turmoil mentioned in verses 5 and 11. And we will praise God forever. Till that day, this is our soul's lament and longing. Put your hope in God. For I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. I pray that will be yours today.